0: Um, is anybody right now sick of the judgmental smear campaign commercials? Yes. I get some hands. Okay, what about the judgmental disposition and finger-pointing that happens in political debates? Sick of that? A few hands still. Abdul Murray says this, Today's rule has become the crimson rule. Draw blood from your opponents so that they don't draw blood from you. We have exchanged the civil public square where we could seek understanding even while disagreeing with the Roman Colosseum in which our ideological champions vanquish our foes. I think that is a good summary of the state of affairs right now, if we're honest. We need to ask ourselves a question, though. Have we ever been guilty of such ungracious language? Of such harsh critiques. That's what we need to ask as children of God. Tuesday, many of you know, is Election Day, and as an American citizen, I would encourage you to go out and exercise your right to vote. Please do that, that would be wise. But I would remind you that as a citizen of the kingdom of God, whether your candidate wins or loses, God's throne is not in Washington, D.C. Let's pray. For our nation's response to this election, and let's pray for this coming election. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity uh, to gather together and worship, to hear what your word has to speak to us, to lift, lift up our voices in praise to you, Lord. Lord, we pray right now over our nation and over our nation's leaders. Lord, we pr- pray over the congressmen and women. We pray over the future President of the United States. Lord, we pray over this election and we pray over the response of this nation, whatever happens and whomever is elected. We remember right now, Lord, that you are still sovereign, you are still in control, you are still on your throne, and we place our hope and we fix our hope there. Lord, as we hear your word today, we pray that you will help us to receive it with gladness. We pray that as it might penetrate into our hearts. It might even cut, separating bone from marrow, Hebrews says, Lord, that we would be willing and ready to receive what you have to speak to us. It's in your name we pray these things now, amen. Jonathan Pennington says this, that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling people to reconsider who God is and what he desires for his creatures. He intends to reorient our values, our desires, our ambitions, our behaviors, all in light of devotion to God, of loving God and loving our neighbor. That's what Jesus intends to do. And last week, we talked about how Jesus was reorienting our internal struggle, our internal battle with anxiety, where we seek to fulfillment in the things of this world. And we saw that we have hope in a heavenly Father who is personal. He cares for us and he is powerful because he's our heavenly Father. And this week, Jesus is going to take a turn from talking about the internal battle, the internal struggle in our lives, to an external reality, how we relate to others. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be in verses 1 through 12 says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and they turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek. Good things to those who ask Him. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We remember that we have to get our worship in order in order to get our lives in order. Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 24. We need to make sure our worship is rightly directed, and that could be just as true today as it was for our internal struggle last week. Here Jesus starts with those two famous words, judge not, or do not judge. It may be one of the most quoted passages in our postmodern or post-truth context. Somehow this particular truth of Jesus has become ingrained into the fabric of our society such that it has become the anthem that people who don't even believe in Jesus proclaim. You hear people say things like this. Who are you to what? Judge me? Who made you the jury and the judge? Who gave you the right to tell other people how to live if a Christian goes onto a public uh newscast and offers a Christian viewpoint on something? What is the first question after they're finished speaking? Sometimes interjecting while they're speaking, the first question that the journalist or the reporter will ask, didn't Jesus say what? Do not judge. This particular phrase of Jesus is ingrained into the fabric of our society. But was Jesus prohibiting all judgment? Was he establishing an absolute prohibition here? Let's look at our context. Verse 6, Jesus says this, after having said in verse 1, do not judge. In verse 6, he says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Okay, that is not dogs and pigs he's talking about. that. that is it there. That is an analogy for particular types of people. He's calling you to make a judgment. Verse 15, beware of false prophets. That's already a judgment who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves, you will recognize them by their fruits. Once again, Jesus is calling his disciples to make a particular judgment. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath, and some people come to him, and they're accusing Jesus of being possessed by a demon. And Jesus does not even prohibit his detractors his opponents from making judgments, what does he say to them? John 7:24. do not judge by appearances, but, here it is, judge with right judgment. So when Jesus says, do not judge, we are not to understand this as an absolute prohibition that has been understood as in our culture. It's a particular prohibition. What kind of judgment is Jesus prohibiting then? Well, I would suggest to you that He prohibits the critical spirit, or what we might call the condemning judgmental spirit. He's prohibiting us from using words to tear down, to break down, to belittle, to harm, or to hurt others. He's not asking us to suspend critical thinking, to suspend the use of our faculties, He's not asking us not to identify sin as sin. Scott McKnight, the scholar, says this, Christians can pronounce, that is good. And they can pronounce, that is wrong. But Christ calls us not to say, you are condemned by God. That is not in our hands to do. There are two attributes that Jesus brings out in his analogies, and his pictures, that help us to understand something about the critical spirit. The critical spirit first is blind to eternal judgment. Verse 1, judge not what? That you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Have you ever considered why a criminal criminal? Carries out their crime? Not like their goal or their desire or their ambition, like I'm gonna rob a bank so that I can get rich or something, but when they actually arrive on the scene and they're gonna fulfill their crime, why do they go through with it? Is it not that they think they can get away with it? They can get by without getting caught? If the criminal pulls up to the bank and there's a cop sitting out front, the likelihood of actually performing the crime goes way down, does it not? Why does a child lie to their parents? Because they think they're going to get away with it. Could you imagine how we would live differently if we knew that our eternal judgment was tomorrow? Like the person accused of a crime, we'll stay with this analogy, the person who's been accused of a crime and they know they have to stand before a judge tomorrow, what do they do today? They go get a haircut, they might even buy a suit or a shirt and a tie, they clean up their act and then they show up at the court the next day and they speak with the utmost respect. Yes, judge. Yes, your honor. Yes, sir. Is this not true? You would live differently today if you knew or remembered or acknowledged that judgment was coming. And Jesus has that in mind here. In Peter, Peter tells us that judgment begins with the house of God. Jesus later tells us in Matthew chapter 12, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Where does our critical judgment, judgmental spirit come from? It comes out of the abundance of our heart. And then he tells us this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus is not offering a different form of salvation here. He's not offering a different way. He knows that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through Him. But He is telling us something that is said repeatedly through Scripture. You reap what you sow, and you can tell a tree by its fruit. Many of you know these things. It does not matter where your condemning words come from or where they are spoken. Okay? It doesn't matter if you speak them in the safety and confines of your house to your close confidant and nobody else knows you spoke them. It doesn't matter if they were shared or aired on public TV or if they became a viral sensation and people ridiculed you. You will be found out. Your Father in heaven knows and He sees. Every word you speak. And Jesus says you will be held accountable for those words. And so what he's saying here is is do not be like the unforgiving servant of Matthew chapter 18. You guys have heard of him before. He has a huge debt that he owes to the master. And there's no way in an entire lifetime that he could ever pay this debt back. And so what does he do? He goes and he pleads to the master. Please what? Forgive my debt. And the master graciously and mercifully Forgives his debt. And then the unforgiving servant goes off and he realizes he has a servant who owes him money. Also a large debt, not as big as his debt was, but also a large debt. And so he goes to that servant and he demands payment. And when he can't repay, what does he do? He throws him in jail. Not showing the mercy that the Father had shown him or the Master had showed him. And Jesus' words are stinging You wicked servant. Matthew chapter 18:32 I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And here in Matthew chapter 7 Jesus says with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. In Luke chapter 6, where Luke recounts this do not judge story, the verse that happens right before it says this Luke 6:36, be merciful, therefore, as your heavenly Father is what? Merciful. That's what should shape us as children of God. The second thing Jesus brings out is, is this: that the critical spirit is blind to its own sin. He brings this out through a picture and through an analogy that is graphic and it's beautiful, uh, but he also explicitly calls it what what it is. And he says, you hypocrite. That's an actor, a person who's putting on a mask, pretending to be something that they're not. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log... In your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, then you will see clearly. Just take the speck out of your brother's eye. Is anybody else really good at seeing the sins of other people? <laughs> like finding other people's faults, knowing what's wrong with them? Is it just me? Like, nobody wants to raise their hand for that one, I noticed. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Patty. <laughs> She's honest. Jesus gives us a picture here of that. It's the picture of a log and a speck, okay? A foreign object that is in our brother's eye, a fault. It doesn't belong there. It's an actual problem. It's a real issue in our brother's eye. But he says, you have in your eye a timber, okay? It's it's literally the the floor joist or, or the roof joist, the main beam in construction. In modern construction, and there's pun perhaps intended here, it would be called the eye beam. He's saying this, why do you and how do you do this? You've got a beam in your eye. How, why, why can you not see this when your brother has this? And how do you, like, imagine for a moment this is like 20 or 30 feet long, right? Covers, covers across a building. And how do you, hey, uh, let me, can I help you with that? This is Jesus's verbal meme. His meme game happens to be really good. For those of you who are younger, you know what a meme is. It's like a picture, and then you put some funny words over the picture, and it's something that is so true that when people see it and they read the words, they're like, yeah. And they just get it. And this is the same kind of thing. Jesus essentially writes this humorous little picture, this humorous little analogy in order to make abundantly clear to us what we do. We all look at our own sins as small, right? I only did, you can fill in the blank. It was just a, what, little white lie. But we always see everybody else's sins as huge. We're we're kind of tempted to be in our natural disposition like the Pharisee in that famous story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke chapter 18. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. You get the picture. A.B. Bruce says this, theologian. This is a pharisaic vice of exalting ourselves by disparaging others, and it's a very cheap way of gaining the moral high ground. Consider what the tax collector prays. Standing far off, The tax collector would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what is Jesus saying? We need to first identify what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that disciples are inherently worse sinners than other people. Okay, that's not the point of what he's saying. What he is saying is this, is that we need to take our own sins more seriously than we take the sins of others. Imagine for a moment that you took your own sins, small as you might presently see them, okay, small as they might seem to you, you took them as seriously as you took a politician's sin. Might be a humbling moment for us. And that's what Jesus is saying. Mercy, the first analogy, the first picture, right? Recognizing the judgment and how it works. Okay? Humility. These two things would go a long way in shaping how we relate to others, in preventing the critical judgmental disposition that is a natural overflow of the sinful human heart. However, we need to understand something here. Jesus, like we said, is not prohibiting all judgment. As a matter of fact, here he leaves room for us to to judge with mercy, and then he leaves room for us to actually help our brother after we have humbly addressed our own sin. Does he not? He says, first, what? Take the log out of your own eye, and then go help your brother. You see, it's when in humility we can acknowledge our own sin and have it addressed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's when in humility we can recognize the huge logs that Jesus has had to take out of our eye that we are able to compassionately, graciously, carefully, and kindly go to our neighbor and remove the speck out of their eye with the care of a trained physician. This is a careful matter. You need to be cautious if you're going to do eye surgery. And you need to be cautious, and you need to be gracious when you go to address somebody in their faults. Jesus says this in 1 Peter, the, the Bible says this, 1 Peter chapter 3, when you make a defense for the gospel, you are to make it with gentleness and respect. In Colossians chapter 4, we're told this, that in our walk towards outsiders, we are to let our speech always be gracious. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, we're told to restore a brother in the spirit of gentleness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy to correct your opponents with gentleness, and then he says this, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are called ambassadors of Christ. We are told that we are ministry ministers of what? Reconciliation. How we speak in this world matters. We can defend our faith in such a way that our delivery is gentle and gracious so that it will bring restoration and ultimately reconciliation, and it points to the gospel. Proverbs 15 says, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. May we not have perverseness in our speech. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. Be considerate, be careful, be gentle, be gracious, be wise in your judgments towards others. That's the next thing that Jesus tells us, though. He says, now, judge wisely. He prohibits here spineless acceptance of everything. There's a pendulum swing that happens a lot of times in the Christian faith when a a Christian having been raised in the faith, all of a sudden hears, do not judge, okay? And and so they hear, do not judge, and so they jump on this kind of, oh, I can't ever say any judgment, and they swing to the other side, and they're like, okay, I just need to be spineless and accept everything. It's a very dangerous risk. D.A. Carson says this, Disciples exhorted to love their enemies and not to judge might fail to consider the subtleties of the argument, and they might become undiscerning simpletons. Jesus does not want that. And so he offers this verse, verse 6, as a balance. It's a counterbalance to what he's been saying in verses 1 through 5. He says this, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls To pigs. Why? Lest they trample on them and turn to attack you. There's a time where it is wise, okay, not to give something holy to someone. As I was reading this this week, I I couldn't help but let my imagination run wild with the pearls to pigs analogy, right? And I don't know about you guys, if you watch HGTV ever, but we're at least familiar with the concept. The basic concept is this, it's like the rags to riches for a home and the riches to rags for a family, okay? That's how HGTV works, okay? You buy a dump, throw all of your money into it, and it becomes a palace. And at the end, everybody's like happy, and they're like, yay, but if you watch HGTV enough, you'll notice that they do some really foolish things or they do some really extravagant things that any normal person is like, yeah, that's not going to work in real life. Or they're never going to use that. And so I imagined HGTV being invited in for the pig pen makeover. And of course, it's the family's prized pig, so you've got to get him the purple mattress, right? We've seen the commercials. Egyptian cotton sheets. You get the picture? And since it's the prized pig, you might as well give him grandmother's pearl necklace. And now it's time for the reveal. Gasp. (gasps) What happened? Nobody's going to look upon them and say, I can't believe the pig destroyed the, the bed. i just can't believe that the pig didn't keep the necklace anymore. i can't believe he would trample it in the mud like that you fool this is jesus picture you don't throw valuable nice good things to pigs and to dogs it's just not what you do this is foolish there's a spineless mentality that comes into the Christian faith where people just think that the Christian faith to love our enemies means accept everything that everybody says. But the gospel is so valuable that we cannot do that. To love our enemies is not to accept everything they want as right. If our child okay, wants to jump off the Mackinac Bridge, we don't go, okay. Sounds great. If that's what you want to do, let's do it. And drive them up there and encourage them to jump off. We know that's foolish. It's not good for their life. It's going to hurt them. It's going to harm them. And the pearl, you don't throw to a pig. The pearl, it reminds us of the pearl of greatest price in Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 through 46, where the merchant, he goes out and he sells everything to get the pearl of greatest price. And what what Jesus tells us is that that pearl of greatest price is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Do you value the gospel like that? Do you cherish the gospel like that, that you don't want anything to muddy it? you don't want anything to come against it? Do you value, would you sell everything in order to obtain it? There are two ways that I see primarily in our cultural context that people try to destroy the gospel. The first is just a kind of vilification, a harsh rejection, a critical condemnation of Christians and of the gospel. And there comes a time where you have to understand somebody's critical spirit coming at you and step away and say, I'll leave it in the hands of God. That's what Jesus is saying. But there's a second way, and it's the adaptation of the gospel to match our cultural morals. And this one is also dangerous, where we just accept whatever's going on in culture And in the process, the gospel gets turned in kind of a a doormat for all the mud of society. All the ideas that don't align with the gospel just get, the gospel gets changed instead of people being changed. And Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. There is a time where in our wise, discerning judgment, we shake off our feet. Proverbs 9 says, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man And he will love you. The gospel shapes our lives. It shapes the way we think. It shapes the way we relate. It shapes the way we engage others and how we speak to them. And we need to consider these things. Now, as you've been following along in the Sermon on the Mount, I will ask you, have the demands of the Sermon on the Mount beginning to mount up for anybody? Let's see a few hands. The surpassing righteousness The purity in thought, emotion, behavior, the sincerity, the integrity, the grace, the love, the humility, the spiritual discipline, the the confident trust in God, and now the wise discerning spirit that, that, that attempts to tame the tongue, which James himself tells us is like taming a forest fire. Who can do that? We should be at least moderately familiar with that over the last few summers. It's not easy. These demands force us to recognize that we need help. We recognize our own personal inadequacy to live up to the demands of the Sermon on the Mount fully in our own power. We need God to actually help us do this. And so we turn in the sermon to verse seven, where Jesus extends to us a gracious hand of God in prayer. Verse seven. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks, find. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will you give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? There are a lot of parallels if you were to read back into Matthew chapter 6 at the end between Matthew 6 and Matthew 7 7 through 11. We have the same heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, who is identified here at being present with us that we saw last week. We have the same phrase, how much more. Prayer to our Father matters. And so we can pray here. Why? Because God hears and He responds. It has been said that one can be truly industrious man and yet be poor in material things. But you cannot be a truly praying man and be poor in spiritual things. Scripture tells us a lot about prayer. In the, in the Lord's Prayer already, we've learned a little bit about prayer, and we're reminded that you need to be forgiving as you ask for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts, what? As we have forgiven our debtors, or those who have trespassed against us. Scripture speaks of, of asking God in faith, asking according to God's will. It speaks of the power of the prayers of a righteous man. And these are all really important things. We read about the importance of persistence, like the persistent widow that we read about. And here, there's, there's a sense of persistence. He says, ask, seek, knock. And each one of these are the perfect present tense. Tense. And so that means that it's be continually asking, be continually seeking, be continually knocking. However, the hope and the emphasis and the encouragement we have when we read these passages are not merely in our capacity to be persistent, but in the fact that our Father actually hears and responds. 1 Peter chapter 3, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. 1 John 5.14, And this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, what? He hears us. Psalm 34, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord, what? Hears, and He delivers them out of all of their troubles. This is a beautiful thing to know. Prayer is effective because we have a God who hears. He's not like those impotent gods we spoke of last week who were made in human hands, who have ears but do not hear, who have hands but cannot feel, who have feet but cannot walk, who have mouths but cannot talk. We have a God who has ears and can hear. Our God hears our prayers and He has the capacity to respond. You see, I believe that our persistence in prayer is intimately attached to the confidence we have in whether or not we have a God who hears and responds. If you believe that God does not hear and does not respond, you won't pray. Why would you? I'm often... Uh, startled by the devotion of people in eastern religions and eastern cultures where they will walk sometimes half mile or a mile every day to a temple to bow and kneel and pray before an idol, a statue that someone in their community made. And yet we have a God who is, we're told, is living and active. Okay? We have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who died. He came, lived, died, and rose again on the third day, and he ascended on high, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he's interceding on our behalf, and we have a Holy Spirit dwelling in us who helps us in our prayers, and to think that we would forget that we have a God who hears our prayers, and indeed, he is a God who responds when we pray to him. Second, pray because God gives better gifts. How much more will your father give good gifts to his children? Jesus has a little subtlety in what he says here. He throws something in this little discussion of the father who who will give, you know, if you ask for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. If you ask for fish, he's not going to give you like a snake. And I, I know there's people who are like, I like snakes and stuff. The point is not whether or not it's okay to own a snake. The point is, okay, there's something like a fish, fishy looking kind of snake that's inedible and probably not good for the body. It's harmful to their child. And a father wouldn't give their kid that but he says something in here. And a lot of people just read right past it. We look right over it. What he says is this. If you, what? Who are evil? He doesn't expound on it. He doesn't discuss it in any further detail. He just accepts that you will understand that this reality is true. That we have a sinful disposition from birth. That this is an inherent thing in human nature. And yet, even the sinful father gives life-giving gifts to their child, gives good gifts to their child. John chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus says this, Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. The fullness of joy in the Christian life comes by asking the Father for the good gifts that only He can actually give. And He desires to bring to you the fullness of joy that He has to offer. But a lot of times, we attach the fullness of joy to earthly, material realities, don't we? And so our prayers sound something like, hey, God, can you make me rich? Can you give me a new And we think that that is what's going to satisfy. That's the kind of asking, seeking, and knocking that we do. Dallas Willard said, "God, please don't grant me more power than my character can handle." That's a spiritual prayer. I think the Father's happy to answer that kind of prayer. Luke chapter eleven, verse thirteen gives us further insight into what these good gifts are. Jesus Jesus says this, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We have the Holy Spirit. If we have believed in Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection— as the means by which we have been reconciled to God the Father. Our sins have been forgiven. The the penalty for our sins, the punishment, has been paid. We're assured that if we have done this, we have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you believe that? That's an awfully good gift. Every spiritual blessing. One thirteen in Ephesians says this, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, you were sealed with what? The promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There is an eternal inheritance before us, and we have the gift of the Holy Spirit that has already assured it. You want to know something about the fullness of joy that you could be having as a child of God? Understand the gift that God has already given you in the salvation you have in Jesus Christ, the the present indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is transforming you into the likeness of Jesus Christ, and the fullness of the inheritance that waits for you. That'll teach you something about the fullness of joy. I appreciate what Tim Keller said when he said this, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knew. I think that to be true, and I think that uh, helps us to understand what Jesus is saying here. Ask, seek, seek. Knock. God hears and He wants to respond and He gives good gifts, but we don't under, always understand what the good gifts are that God will give. And so I'll ask you this is, is the demand of the Sermon on the Mount great? Yes. Is it possible for us to fulfill the demands of the Sermon on the Mount in our own human strength? No. But Is it possible with God? Absolutely. And so the sermon ends this way, this portion of the sermon. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's the golden rule. We've heard it, and I'm not going to have any extended dialogue on this. The beginning I shared to you today's rule is the crimson rule. Jesus advises his disciples to have the golden rule, and we understand the golden rule most fully when we see it in the person of Jesus Christ. The golden rule tells us to do to others what we would want them to do to us under the acknowledgement and understanding that we may never get it back. They may never do it to us. As a matter of fact, they may do the exact opposite. We may do what they would want them to do, and they will do what we would not want them to do. The golden rule acknowledges this reality. But Jesus still says do it. And in the gospel, Jesus Christ exemplified that when he himself gave his life, died on a cross for us, something that we would never have done, and yet he did for us. We're at the time in our service where we are going to participate in communion. I would encourage you if you have...